Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, Aspie's Genevieve Feely speaks with Nikki Marsak about the impact of COVID-19 in conflict-affected areas, and Aspie's research interns Alex, Albert and Hal talk about climate change and climate action in the wake of COVID-19. But first, Aspie Senior Analyst Kelsey Munro speaks to Charles Idle, Senior Fellow and Visiting Scholar at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney, about the current tensions between Australia and China and the US-China relationship in the COVID era. Charles Adele, thanks so much for joining us on the Aspie podcast. Great to have you. Thanks very much for having me on. It's really nice to be with you guys here. Um, look, we're speaking shortly after China has cut Australian beef imports, which which looks like a retaliatory trade measure, uh, likely in punishment for Australia's calls for this in- international inquiry into the coronavirus. As usual, China's left a lot of plausible di- deniability on on what it's doing here. What's what's your view? Is this a sort of retaliation or a warning shot? And where do you think it will go? And, and I guess what does this indicate more broadly about China's behaviour on the world stage um, in this in this virus era we're in? Okay, you've asked me 10 different questions there. Let me see <laughs> if I can pull them apart one by one, Kelsey. Uh, so what does this suggest? Uh, this suggests, as uh, men- multiple observers have noted, if you're uh, brandishing a gun and waving around and someone ends up dead next to you, uh, people are going to look to you regularly as the one who pulled the trigger. Uh, so, yes, there is plausible deniability on beef, on barley uh, before that, on popular mass-led boycotts having absolutely nothing to do uh, with the Chinese government, although articulated by the Chinese ambassador to Australia, uh, no less coming out of uh, the briefing room in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China. Uh, so it strikes me, what are we trying to do here? We're trying to send warning shots across Australia to not do anything that would upset Beijing uh, from its uh, point of view politically, and that uh, there is at least the threat of retaliation. Uh, in this instance, it's economically uh, with the brandishing of these threats. Uh, you know, even to zoom out a little bit more quickly, Kelsey, uh, it's important to note that this is not something that Australia is experiencing on its own, although it is experiencing these threats very acutely right now. Uh, because this is part of the Chinese playbook about how Beijing tries to exert maximum pressure to pursue its ever-expanding list of interests. So even in the last couple of months on the economic front, we should note that it's not just Australia, uh, but that Chinese ambassadors around Europe have made similar threats. Uh, in Germany, uh, we heard uh, calls that German uh, cars would get less access to the German markets uh, if they continued to pursue the lines that they were. We heard in Denmark at the end of last year that if the Faroe Islands didn't uh, sign a deal with Huawei, uh, the free trade agreement that they were in the offing of signing uh, would be cut. Uh, this is even more acute, perhaps, in the Czech Republic, uh, where you had some lawmakers saying lawmakers uh, saying that they were going to go to Taiwan. And the response of the Chinese ambassador there was, let me name drop several Czech companies that do business in China and who would feel the immediate consequences of this. And this is all very much in line, again, with what we heard at the uh, end of April from the Chinese ambassador to Canberra. Of course, not saying that it was uh, Beijing calling for this, but he said rather that the Chinese public is frustrated, dismayed and disappointed with what Australia is doing now. 
and that Chinese students, right, the tertiary uh, education market is a huge area here, might have second thoughts about traveling to uh, such a country that's not so friendly to China. So I, I just, I wanted to expand outward because I think it's important to note that Australia is not experiencing this alone. Australia might be particularly vulnerable because of the extraordinary amount of trade that goes to China. 32.6% is a very high volume of trade. But I note too that China has more vulnerability than you might think too, because certainly on hard commodities that we're talking about, uh, China needs those to power its growth. I'd also note that when we kind of span the region, these are not threats that have uh, no ability to be carried out. They do. But that oftentimes, and probably more often than not, China likes to waive the threat to see what it can get business leaders and political leaders to do in terms of self-censoring and climbing down rather than pulling the trigger. Yeah, that's interesting. I, of, I often wonder how effective this kind of bullying sort of behavior is because it does seem to engender as much pushback as, as capitulation quite often. Yeah, uh, so it, it does. And I think you can see uh, even in Australia over the last two weeks, you've seen a, quite a mixed reaction. And I think that's probably the best answer uh, mm. that certainly the general public is very well aware of this and no one is more favorably inclined to uh, the Chinese government in the aftermath of these threats. So long term, uh, I think this is antithetical probably to the interest that Beijing is trying to pursue. However, in the short and medium term, uh, particularly for those businesses that do most uh, business uh, with China, you have seen a fair amount of churn. Uh, you have seen a fair amount even in the editorial space of uh, decrying uh, Canberra's decisions to rock uh, the boat with China. And of course, that misses the entire point that it is China that is purposely trying to rock the boat on this. Yeah. What about... Um, but, it, you know, actually, uh, I'll just give a... Um, for anyone who's listening who's interested in this, uh, I have some friends uh, over uh, at the Center for New American Security who have been looking at tools of economic coercion uh, that China has added to their toolkit. They have two really good reports on this. Uh, and I would just uh, recommend that uh, viewers go their way because your exact question, Kelsey, about which of these tools are most effective and which are used most often, there's a whole data set on what China has used, uh, regulatory and non-regulatory uh, tools, uh, how frequently they've used them, and which ones have actually had effect. That sounds very interesting. So that's the, the uh, CNAS website, you'd find that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And um, look, what about, I think overnight we saw the rhetoric around the US-China trade deal looking quite precarious. Trump tweeted about the plague from China and there's been a lot of hawkish language from the Global Times and other sort of state mouthpieces from China. Do you see this as a sort of I guess, a continuation of the existing trends in the U.S.-China relations, or has the virus fundamentally changed the trajectory? I see uh, it is a continuation of the trends, but it's hardened and accelerated them in a lot of different areas. Uh, so let me stand back for a second to explain that, Kelsey. Before uh, the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, anyone uh, could have told you, anyone who picked up a newspaper could have told you that U.S.-China relations were becoming more fraught more rocky across a broadening uh, degree of areas. That was true in the military sector, in the economic sector, in the tech space, in the competition around international institutions, no less even in the ideational and the ideological space. What we've seen is with the onset of the coronavirus, 
there had been a hope that maybe with an existential crisis, uh, this would have brought China uh, and the U.S. together uh, as they have worked together in the past on global health uh, crises, uh, and that it might even have hit the pause button on some of these areas. That is not what has happened. Uh, and uh, both sides, we can look at their particular actions. On the Chinese side, what I've seen is you can see that uh, China simultaneously has been pursuing uh, mask diplomacy, right? Trying to send equipment. And by sending, we mean selling equipment uh, to various nations. Uh, they're being a good neighbor uh, on this. While they have ramped up the pressure that they're making countries feel, be it on economic uh, issues that we were just talking about, or even in the military space, because there's been a substantial uptick in the pressure that the Chinese Navy, the Chinese Coast Guard, and even the Chinese Maritime Militia have been pressurizing Japan, the Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, all around their periphery. So you can see that in some ways, uh, this is seen as an opportunity when the world is distracted to try to press pre-existing strategic options even further. And that is very obviously engendering a reaction, uh, both by the United States, uh, and that has a lot of political overtones to it, but also by countries both in Asia and Europe and around the world, because despite the mass diplomacy, uh, Chinese uh, approval ratings uh, of the Chinese government and its actions uh, have been plummeting during this uh, pandemic. Yeah, the um, it's funny how authoritarians aren't that great at a charm offensive. <laughs> mm. um, if we could move as many conversations in Canberra do to the to the alliance, at least at least that is a shorthand for Australia U.S. relations. Um, the the U.S. has eventually backed Australia's calls for an inquiry into the origins of the virus, but the administration arguably hasn't really been helping that cause with its sort of spreading conspiracy theories and um, about where the virus might have come from, things like that, probably we can assume a distance between the administration's view of the Australian alliance and what you might call the deep state view. Uh, I mean, Trump's distaste for alliances seems to be one of the few consistencies of his presidency. But obviously we have the election coming in November. What what does it mean for the Australia-US alliance if Trump is re-elected? Do you think there are um, pressures on that alliance if Trump is back for a second term? Yes. Uh, but I also think, uh, you know, that that's a political conversation. It's one worth having and worth pursuing. But I also think it's important uh, to note that even if you have a Biden, a Democratic administration, uh, that does not mean that any pressures or, or tensions and tensions and pressures are OK within an alliance. Uh, that's, in fact, how you pursue conversations. The question is, in what manner they occur? And I would note that I say that because even with a Biden administration, if that were to happen, there will be tensions, but there'll be slightly different ones uh, with Australia. Back to your question, Kelsey. Uh, your question was, if Trump uh, is reelected, what does that mean for uh, the U.S.-Australian alliance? Look, on the one hand, uh, Australia comes out better than most nations because most U.S. allies take a beating uh, from Trump, certainly rhetorically, uh, certainly from how much the U.S. tries to exact out of the alliance. And we can look to both South Korea and Japan, where you have tens of thousands of U.S. troops uh, based and the, uh, the administration asking those countries to pay more. Australia gets mm -hmm. a pass because it is consistently seen as a very good ally, right? There's a trade surplus. You know, we're not charging you uh, for uh, hosting the Marines up in uh, Darwin. 
and so it's seen as a good ally. Now, whether or not you want to be seen that much uh, by Trump uh, and it is an open question. So I, I tend to think that his the base part is his instincts uh, around going it alone on antipathy to human rights, democracy, rule of law, on not figuring out how to broaden coalitions are likely to exacerbate some of the tensions uh, between the U.S. and Australia at this point. But uh, I do think it's important to note that I don't think, despite the ridiculous rhetorical um, over-the-top unhelpfulness consistently uh, coming out of the White House, uh, the U.S.-Australian alliance has not gone off the skids, uh, nor do I think it uh, likely to, even under a second Trump administration. Okay. Look, thanks, Charles. And look, to finish up, I, I note that we spoke, it was more than a year ago when the Democrats still had a bewildering array of candidates in the field. And you said you thought Joe Biden would be the candidate. You were, you turned out to be prescient in that. Um, if I can draw you into politics, do you reckon he can really win in this extraordinary election that's coming up? Absolutely. You know, look, and uh, look, uh, truth in advertising, I certainly hope he wins. Uh, but, but there's, just from an analytical point of view, uh, I'd say, first of all, let's remember that the U.S. campaign season is extraordinarily long. The United States is heading into uh, at least a horrible recession, if not a depression right now. You have 15 percent at least unemployed. Uh, you have the death rate climbing. These are not good statistics. So there's so many unknown factors. Uh, but to your question about whether or not Biden can win, uh, sure. Uh, polling, uh, even over the last couple of weeks, suggests that not only is he potentially pulling apart, and this is internal Trump campaign polling, but in the key battleground states, uh, Biden is, in fact, widening his lead. Uh, now, uh, again, we don't, this is a snapshot, and I'm checking my watch in May, mid-May, there's a lot to come between here and there. Uh, but it strikes me as absolutely, not only are all American presidential campaigns competitive, but it actually looks like this one is going to be hyper competitive. Uh, and Biden seems to, despite not getting out of the basement, in the words of the administration, Trump seems to be losing altitude the more he talks at this point. Well, there's some good news for all of us. <laughs> thanks. Thanks very much for um, joining us on the podcast, Charles. It's been great. Thanks, Kelsey. Next, Aspie researcher Genevieve Feely caught up with Nikki Marsak from the University of Queensland's Asia-Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect. They discuss the impact of COVID-19 in conflict-affected areas and the risk of atrocity crimes. So today we're talking to Nikki Marzak, a genocide scholar at the Asia-Pacific Centre for the Responsibility to Protect, who also leads their work on the Asia-Pacific Atrocity Prevention Partnership. Thanks so much for coming on today, Nikki, to talk a little bit about genocide and atrocity risk during the COVID crisis. I think it's a really interesting angle on the current crisis, so I'm really eager to hear your thoughts. Maybe to start, perhaps, um, what countries do you see of particular concern during this pandemic? Are there particular countries in our region where you see events unfolding which speak to a heightened risk of atrocity? Well, thanks, Genevieve, and thanks for having me on um, your podcast. Look, before we into some specific countries maybe um maybe I can talk just briefly about how we've been looking at this from the, uh, from the center because as you know we have a range of early warning tools that we use um, already to monitor the risk of atrocity crime and what we've been doing over the past few weeks is really trying to apply 
a COVID-19 lens to that work, um, to, to sort of the standard risk assessment tools so that we can identify whether the p- pandemic might actually exacerbate some of those underlying conditions. And so what we've sort of found is that the pandemic could actually intensify some of the underlying risk factors in particularly in conflict-affected areas, uh, but also that it could have a disproportionate impact on vulnerable groups, especially those groups who are already facing persecution, who are displaced, for example. I think it's just important to note that there, so there are a lot of countries that are seeing so rest unfolding, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with atrocity crime. Um, so when we talk about atrocity crime, we're specifically talking about the four crimes that are covered under the UN principle of the responsibility to protect. And those crimes are uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity and war crimes. And I guess when we're thinking about prevention or early warning, it's important that we understand that there might be a trigger. So it could be, say, a political event like a coup, or in this case, we're thinking about a pandemic as a trigger, but it's not going to be a trigger that leads to atrocity crime in itself. Uh, What it can do is exacerbate the risk where there are already underlying risk factors. So with that in mind, um, you know, let's talk about some of the countries that are at high risk, I think. And I would say our greatest concern probably are for the countries that are already experiencing conflict and especially where there have been groups that are already being persecuted or where there are underlying ethnic and religious tensions that could be inflamed with the effects of the pandemic. Is it okay if we just talk about Myanmar for a minute, Genevieve? Yeah, of course. I think that's a really excellent example. Okay. All right. Well, look, just very briefly, obviously the the people that are displaced in IDP and refugee camps, so this is in both in Rakhine State in Myanmar and in Bangladesh, in Cox Bazar, um, those people will be especially vulnerable. Not only are they facing um, poor sanitation and overcrowding and a general lack of access to healthcare, but there are other factors that can impact on their experience of the pandemic as well. So things like internet blackouts, which mean that important information is not reaching those who need it, so important information about the spread of the virus, about how to minimise the spread, for instance, Um, things like hand washing and social distancing to the extent those things are possible anyway in a refugee camp. We also know from our partners in the region that conflict um, and violence has actually been continuing over the past couple of months. So even while COVID-19 has been spreading, there are reports from Myanmar that um, the Tatmadaw is uh, still committing war crimes. So there have been allegations that in states like Chin, in Rakhine, in northern Shan State, the military has conducted air raids and there are also reports of civilians having been targeted with things like arbitrary arrests, with uh, torture and, and even killings. So what that all means, I guess, in the context of a pandemic is that those people who are already vulnerable to violence and to conflict and and also to atrocity crime, they already have a lack of access to healthcare. And in addition to that now, they're not able to flee violence because of the lockdown and the border closures. Um, so they're essentially stuck in these conflict-affected areas. 
the other aspect of that, of course, is that humanitarian assistance will be limited for those people. The other, the other important thing about Myanmar is that it, there is a really recent history of um, using hate speech to incite violence against the Rohingya community in particular. And we know that atrocity crimes have been committed over the past few years in Myanmar. So there is a risk that scapegoating of that community for the spread of COVID-19 could potentially lead to further atrocity crimes. And partly that could happen because there's already a culture of denial of those crimes having been committed and there's also a culture of impunity. So the Myanmar government and the military haven't been held accountable for previous atrocity crimes, given that the world's attention is now very much focused on the coronavirus. It's possible that, uh, you know, that there are perpetrators of atrocity crimes around the world who may feel that they can get away with, with committing these crimes much more easily now. So, um, so look, Myanmar is uh, definitely um, something that we're keeping an eye on. The other country I'd mention, I guess, is Indonesia because Indonesia in general was, was very slow to respond and that applies to the whole country. Um, but in particular, West Papua is has some of those underlying causes that we might talk about in a bit more detail later. But in particular, it's got a long history of human rights abuses and armed conflict. And the West Papuan population is also vulnerable from a health perspective. So partly that's due to inadequate health care, um, inadequate hospitals uh, in West Papua, and a community that has a lot of complex health needs. So there's been um, years of, of very high uh, sort of widespread HIV infection and other underlying health issues that could uh, really pose a, a big risk in the event of um, a coronavirus outbreak. So when we add to those underlying factors um, some of the socioeconomic issues, the outbreak of violence in 2019 as well, and a history of human rights violations by Indonesia, which include things like internet blackouts, holding of information, banning of foreign journalists and banning of UN officials, and a broader culture of racism as well against Indigenous West Papuans. I think all of that combined probably creates a quite a strong risk of um, atrocity crime. And in addition to that, when you look at it from, a, from the perspective of the coronavirus, because West Papua has a huge presence of the resource extraction industry, and it also has a large migrant community, there's a lot of movement to and from the provinces. So um, my understanding is that Indonesia hadn't um, closed down those borders between the mainland or between other parts of Indonesia and West Papua. So there you have a very vulnerable population that is being, you know, exposed to outbreak, potential outbreaks of the coronavirus as well. Yeah, I think there are two really, really good case studies into what's going on in our region um, and how some of these kind of pre-existing tensions are starting to play out. I think a really good point you make is that the pandemic, for very good reasons, takes focus away from these kind of issues. Um, and I think also during this crisis, we've seen that nations seem to fall back into themselves to respond and there hasn't really been any kind of serious international coordination in order to deal with um, this or the kind of secondary effects that exacerbated atrocity risk. 
kind of presents. How do you think we could improve international coordination mechanisms, particularly in light of the recent um, kind of dramas going on at the UN Security Council? So there, look, there are a few things. I think you're absolutely right to suggest, you know, that the diversion of attention by countries, um, that sort of turning inwards and, and focusing on domestic issues, um, means that the coordination that's required to monitor conflict and to, and to um, provide early warning for atrocity crime is going to be diminished. Secondly, you know, you mentioned the Security Council and the, the UN Secretary General did a few weeks ago call for a global ceasefire in the face of the pandemic. And there was some early optimism. I believe some of the some uh, armed groups actually responded quite positively to that in the in the first instance. Um, but by the end of April, some of those ceasefires had already broken and violence had spiked in several places. So what probably would have really consolidated the Secretary General's call would have been a Security Council resolution. And there was, in fact, one in the works. It was a French-Tunisian-backed resolution that would have really reiterated and reinforced the importance of, of a ceasefire during this time. Unfortunately, what happened is that, you know, we I mean, we all know about the tensions between the US and China. Um, they've only increased over, over the last few weeks and those are now being played out at the Security Council. So it's actually been reported in the last few days that the uh, draft resolution um, was blocked at the Security Council. That was partly due to the insistence by China um, to include a statement on the World Health Organization's response and in turn a refusal by the US to include that mention. Um, so that that seems to be uh, the obstacle at the moment to getting a Security Council resolution happening. And it's really disappointing, I think, that we're not seeing that coordination at the international level. I think that draft resolution did actually stress the need for coordination between countries. And, you know, I think you're right, Jen, that, that um, despite the need for global solidarity at the moment, I think countries are really very focused inwards. And while that's understandable, I think there are risks for atrocity prevention. You, you mentioned this already. One risk is that the world will actually pay even less attention to the conflicts that are um, occurring and um, that they may give less priority to protecting vulnerable groups as well. So in states where, you know, where there's a tendency to target particular groups, there are some who may ramp up their persecution of those groups because they know that no one's watching and they're not going to be held accountable. So I think, yeah, I think this tendency to abandon multilateralism and, and coordination, I think that could really have a big impact on things like um, the principles of R2P. You know, it could really set us back in terms of atrocity prevention. I might also mention that um, action from regional bodies would be a really good thing at the moment. Um, I know that ASEAN, for example, has called for a collective response in relation to health outcomes, but has not actually talked about international peace and security at this point. So those are the sorts of things that um, that could help at this stage. There, there does seem to be a lot of work happening at the CSO level, at the community level. There was actually a joint statement on um, the 30th of March that was sent uh, signed by several hundred organisations, including the centre, and 
that statement called on governments to to think about conflict sensitivity and to ensure human rights in their emergency responses to COVID-19. And that statement did actually specifically mention Myanmar and West Papua. Um, It also mentioned um, some other active conflict zones such as Mindanao in the Philippines and, and southern Thailand as well. No, that's great to hear that there's efforts going on at different levels to kind of keep focus on this um, issue during this crisis. I definitely think this is an issue that, you know, it's a good reminder of the secondary effects and consequences of a global health crisis. And we definitely have to kind of remain very alert to them, um, despite everything that's going on. Um, I think at this point we might wrap up. So thanks so much for coming on today. I think it's been a really great topic to explore. Thank you so much, Genevieve. Alexandra Pascoe, Albert Zhang, and Hal Crichton-Standish are three of our 2020 research interns here at ASPE. This week, they sat down to discuss climate change and COVID-19, and how the crisis provides an opportunity for climate action going forward. I'll just give a brief introduction. My name is Hal Crichton-Standish. I'm a research intern here at ASPE, and I'm speaking with Alex and Albert, who are also both research interns. Today, we're hoping to speak about the coronavirus pandemic and how that has impacted green energy policy and also the uh, environmental policies of Australia and other countries like Australia. Um, And yeah, just looking briefly into the future of what this sort of means for those two issues and how they've played out. With no further ado, I guess I'll just kick things off with just a couple couple of things that have really stood out uh, for me over this week and kind of grounding our discussion in uh, what we know so much about the environment and how the pandemic's affected the environment. To begin with, the IEA says that the world will use about 6% less carbon this year, which is roughly the equivalent to losing the entire energy demand of India. And for comparison, when we had the 2008 crash, we only lost about 1.5% of the world's carbon emissions. So what we're looking at with this pandemic is approximately four times as much of an impact on uh, carbon emission reduction as we saw at the end of the global stock market crash. Also, the BBC says that countries in lockdown will see energy demand drop by up to 20%, which is uh, 8% for coal and and can be as high as 65% in terms of demand for jet fuel. So what we're looking at is, is far, far lower usage of carbon to truly astronomical levels. But that said, we do also need to be careful because after the 2008 and 2009 reduction in emissions, they rebounded by almost 6%. So that's four times as much in 2010. So we might be looking at an equally high rebound at the end of this. Um, so that's what we're hoping to talk about today is what will what does the future look like after this pandemic and what opportunities are there for countries like Australia to try and ground their green energy policies and the way they think about climate change. So one aspect I've been looking at in terms of how COVID-19 might affect um, environmental for policy in the future is that there's definitely some sort of lessons and takeaways from how governments sort of reacted to the crisis and um, and from some of the techniques and sort of policies they've sort of implemented. In short, it's been quite a successful sort of um, response by the government in terms of the outcomes. You know, Australia has some of the lowest sort of case numbers in the world, and I think that's been largely due to the fact that we've you know, taken sort of rational responses, staggered kind of decision-making based on uncertainty and updating as data comes in. Um, but also the biggest sort of factor has been the fact that um, the government has listened to some sort of the medical experts and uh, the epidemiologists in terms of what recommendations that should be taken. 
Um, and so I guess like, you know, it gives us hope in terms of, um, in terms of how the government addresses this crisis, but also future crises like the, so the climate change issue. And in fact, that means the government will start listening to scientists and the experts in this area. But obviously, the government do, does face some political pressure from various lobby groups, as well as the fact that you know, this political ideology sort of still embedded in some um, of the thinking involved there. One, one positive aspect of this year, at least, is that we are currently reviewing the Environmental Protection and Diversity Act. So it's a 10-year-old sort of act, um, and um, many groups and individuals have already submitted um, recommendations to increase independence of the scientific committee, which reviews projects and their impacts on the environment, um, as well as then actually asking for greater powers for these committees and commissions to sort of investigate and make environmental assessments. Um, that way, you know, these scientific community committees can give better advice to the government, um, as well as actually accelerate the um, assessment process too, really. And I mean, one danger in kind of um, coming out of this crisis is that the government might may be too sort of narrowly focused on, I guess, future pandemics or the economy in terms of that being its priority going into the future. And so that might neglect sort of the climate crisis. But I think overall, I think at least from what's, what's happened in the last 10 pandemic, it's shown that, you know, we, although we might criticize politicians, we do trust our institutions um, to make good decision making processes. So I think there's still a lot of trust in our political institutions to, to sort of, you know, navigate the future sort of, you know, crisis and issues we'll face, really. Yeah, I definitely agree with both of the points you've made. I think we've seen some really positive signs in terms of um, a short-term positive impact from this pandemic on the environment and air quality and pollution levels. And at least the response in Australia and in a few other countries across the world shows that governments are capable of responding to really serious global problems if they're urgent enough. And yeah, it has been great to see sort of, you know, clean canals in Venice and villages in India who can see the Himalayas from their windows for the first time. But I think what's important to note is that while we are emitting less during this period, the total levels of carbon emissions in the atmosphere are still at all-time highs and that climate change will continue to be a problem once we all come out of the other side of this. So yeah, despite you know, positive indications that we have the ability to address the problem, I think it will be important that governments do sort of seize the initiative because there are risks that we could fall behind in the recovery in terms of climate action. I think we've already seen a few signs of certain countries sort of moving to shelve sort of climate-related initiatives. I know in the EU, Poland have been calling for a carbon trading program to be put on hold and the Czech Republic has been calling for the EU's sort of new climate bill to be abandoned. You also hear stories of airlines sort of urging regulators to delay carbon emissions cutting policies and that's all in the name of sort of continued economic growth uh, now and sort of into the short term. So it will be interesting to see whether governments choose to take this moment to reassess how we've been doing things and maybe look at how we can change things and shift our growth in a more green and sustainable direction. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that goes going forward. Definitely. And I think it'll be a real watershed moment for political leadership to decide how exactly they're going to respond to this. Um, like, as you say, in terms of Poland and the EU, I've got a couple other examples I, I heard of, of how in the US, how a lot of oil company enforcements have been relaxed. If they can prove that they've been affected by coronavirus, 
And similarly in Brazil, I think they've put a lot of their Amazon rainforest protections on hold. So we are unfortunately seeing climate agendas being shelved in a lot of countries as a result of this. So it really will be interesting to see how Australia responds to it, because I think this this really is a moment that's, that is so laden with possibility for them to make a very positive impact. I think King's Mill Bond Think Tank, for example, said that in about half of the world, we've already seen peak demand for fossil, fossil fuels and renewable energy has been far more resilient to the shocks of the COVID coronavirus pandemic than uh, non-renewable energy. So there are a lot of opportunities here. And I think it's definitely up to countries like Australia to try and capitalise on them. Because if we want to reach net zero emissions by 2050, we will essentially need to cut the same amount this year, uh, every year for uh, until we reach 2050. So the, the stakes are high, but the possibilities are high as well. Um, I guess just to summarise um, you know, what we've been talking about, if there's one sort of key takeaway I have to sort of um, you know, point out really is the fact that the government has responded quite well to the current crisis and I think um, from the lessons it's learned, it should then go on forward to sort of um, submit those mechanisms um, into policies as well as law to sort of, you know, draw on expertise advice as well as, you know, take the pandemic as an opportunity to sort of prevent and mitigate further sort of crisis as well. What about you and Alex and Hal? Um, something else I've also found interesting is obviously there's been a lot of discussion about COVID-19 and using this moment to sort of re-examine existing ways of doing things and how um, this could be an opportunity to change. I think also in the Australian context, there's been a lot of talk about Australia's economic dependence on China and whether this is something that should change going forward. I was thinking that when you take that back to climate, if Australia were to take steps to invest in greener, more sustainable forms of energy and economic growth, then this could have a beneficial side effect in uh, helping us to diversify our export profile away from non-renewable resources and also help us to diversify our export relationships. So I think that's a potential area to think Definitely. about. Definitely. I think that's a really great idea. And particularly now seems to be one of the best times to do it because we're seeing some of the largest economic stimulus programs being delivered by the government. Um, so this really is the time in which we need to ask ourselves where we'll be investing and why and uh, what's really the, the best for Australia in the, in the longer term rather than just the short term. So this, I think this really is quite a moment to, that's demonstrating for us not only what the world would look like if we significantly reduced our emissions overnight, but also what the world could look like when we uh, begin to rethink how we're investing our money and, and what the global supply chains are going to look like in the future. If we want to make sure they're resilient to the kind of shocks like this that, that we may be seeing in the, in the future. So yeah, I think because of that, there's, there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of opportunities from the coronavirus pandemic. That's all for this episode of Policy, Guns and Money. Thank you so much for joining us. You can catch up on any of our previous episodes of the podcast on our SoundCloud, including our new mini-series, Australia's Next Steps, which examines the big policy questions Australia is facing at the moment. As always, we would love to hear your thoughts on what we've discussed here today, so please tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening.